You're listening to a 3CR podcast created in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au. Welcome to Women on the Line, the community radio national feminist current affairs program featuring the voices of women and gender-diverse people. Produced at 3CR Community Radio in Nam, Melbourne, and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm your host, Fulong Tran. Women on the Line acknowledges that this program is produced and presented on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and that their sovereignty was never ceded. We acknowledge their elders past and present, as well as the traditional owners of the land on which you're hearing us from. On today's show, we speak with Mary, co-founder of Radical Directory, a project aimed at creating a public online space for leftist grassroots activists. In our discussion, Mary talks to us about how capitalism has infiltrated the internet and social media, and what our role is in all of this as activists, both as individuals and collectives. Mary, can you start by introducing yourself to us? My name is Mary. I'm a trans woman. I am a programmer. I'm also a musician. I'm really interested in technology and radical grassroots political action. I am a member of a small collective called Radical Directory, and we work on media, design, and technology, and using these to support grassroots political action. What inspired you and your friends, comrades, to create Radical Directory? Some friends came up to me and they said, we've got, you know, we're having this issue where we want to stop using social media, but all of the information is on there about what's happening in our communities, what kind of protests, workshops, events are going on. And it's really frustrating, and we need some kind of website or newsletter or something that can help us get that information without having to use these platforms that we hate. And that was just the beginning of a really long conversation that took me personally in a lot of really interesting directions, researching, thinking, chatting with each other about possible solutions to that problem. Yeah, it sounds like something that people say a lot when you ask them about what social programs, social media programs they use or whether they use them at all. It's that like, I don't want to, but I have to. Mm. That feeling that despite what you believe in, it feels like a necessity. I'd, I'd kind of describe it as like coercive relationship. Like a lot of people say that they're addicted to social media platforms. And I think yeah, probably there is some psychological dimension or people talk about dopamine and how the platforms control your brain in this way. But I think people do tend to underestimate the impact that these platforms, just having the user login details of all of these people and data about all of these people that you know, having the data about who your friends are, the power that that gives them to be the best platform for you to communicate with those people, for it to be the most convenient way to talk to those people. And 
that's their choice is to hold that data and privatize it and, and keep it uh, within their control because that is the thing that they take from us and then sell back to us essentially with mm. our attention. Yeah, mm. I think this kind of structural analysis is really empowering and it's like a really critical tool for to undoing these um, relationships that we don't like. Mm. Let's talk about the internet and capitalism, which is a really sure. big topic. <laughs> but how have these two things become so intimately connected with each other? And how does it impact the way that social media and other websites function? And as a result, how that dictates the way we as individuals, as collectives and activists engage with it and with each other. We know that the internet came initially out of work that the United States military was doing to create communications infrastructure that would be resistant to nuclear bombs. And that's why they designed it in this decentralised way that um, can continue operating even if one part goes down. And then at a certain point in history, capital got involved and capitalists were kind of seeing the opportunity to take advantage of this communications infrastructure that was rapidly growing. And I was thinking about, you know, if we're doing like a, trying to analyse it as part of capitalism, like how do we see this infrastructure as like a means of production? I think really seeing it as like communication is so critical to the way that this system functions and all of the transactions, all of the business that's constantly happening. And from a consumer point of view, like from the point of view of each of us using the internet, from the perspective of capitalists, it's like the purpose of the internet is to get us to buy things. Like that's the purpose. And everything else that happens on it from the perspective of the people that own the infrastructure, the means of production, of this production, is kind of secondary. So I guess, like, from that point of view, when we are looking at social media, which is this thing that obviously um, so many of us really highly value, being connected to the people that we love and care about, and then we're thinking, oh, this system is so full of ads and it's being used to, uh, in a really kind of insidious way, manipulate us into buying products and that and that's somehow surprising but I think if we take a step back and think why is this whole system here in the first place it's to like keep bringing us back as consumers into the cycle of capitalist production and I think when we take a look at it from that perspective it's like actually in order to disrupt it we need to be thinking about how can we reclaim some of that economic power from the capitalists and start directing these systems towards socially good things. Which sounds like such an enormous task. Yeah, it is. It's how, how do we do that? I think sometimes when we, as consumers, partake in these systems, we feel like whatever they say it goes. Yeah. And we have no power, we have no say. There's sort of limited amount of control that we have even over our own communication with with the people that we love so how how do we do that i won't pretend that i know the answer to that question but i know that there are some really interesting potential approaches i mean 
I'm interested in as collectives, as communities, starting to think about what, what is the infrastructure that we need. Early on in the Radical Directory project, we were kind of talking about 3CR and like what does 3CR stand for? Like this kind of community radio station that was set up in the 70s and like, you know, what inspired people to kind of pull this project together. And and we know that like this, although in the scheme of capitalism, it's a small project, but when we think about all the incredible information and that's been shared and all the community that's been built on top of this infrastructure that's been created, we can see that it's really powerful. So I think when even at a small scale, community starts investing in building new infrastructure that maybe in this case, we're looking at internet infrastructure that has the potential to have like really enormous flow on effects. Yeah, I guess what you've described is the beauty of community and solidarity and grassroots action uh, on a local level. It can be quite transformative, the type of change that we see. And in some ways, that's the stuff that we have to value and celebrate because those with power and those with capital and means will try to convince you that it's insignificant to stop you from, yeah. Yeah, Totally. And I feel like a premise that underlies so much of this kind of political work that we do is that actually, like, the vast majority of people don't want to be wage labourers, you know. If it was possible to even imagine another way of living, we would take that. And it's just because of this, like, there is no alternative attitude that is just so widely propagandized. And if we can find even small ways to disrupt that, there's a lot of untapped potential. And I think that's a thing to always be keeping in mind when we're talking about this kind of stuff. One of the major issues that we see with the internet and with social media is surveillance. We know that people, communities, vulnerable communities have had, I guess, the internet and social media used against them by big companies like Meta, for example. I think sometimes when we think about surveillance and the internet, we sort of understand what it means. We understand that the data that gets put into whatever program we're using is then used in some way. But I wonder if you could talk us through some of the details about that or if there are things that perhaps people don't really know that you think is really important to share when it comes to surveillance on the internet. The ways that people think about this problem, there's a few different ends of the spectrum that are maybe a bit too far off. One is like not really engaging with that at all, not really caring, like thinking, oh, you know, I've got nothing to hide. Like this is a very common attitude. Um, they can have my data because it doesn't matter, um, which these kind of attitudes pre-exist the internet as well. And then there's this kind of verging towards paranoia maybe, which is to um, overestimate how much data can be extracted from your activities online. And, yeah, I think finding that middle ground is really important because uh, I, I would think about it in terms of, like, how do we 
build effective threat models, I guess, particularly in our political organizing. And that way we can start to talk about actually effective ways to mitigate those threats. For example, like when you're putting your credit credit card details online to buy something, there's not really a risk because the company that you're sending the credit card details to, they would be in a lot of trouble <laughs> if they didn't keep that data safe. And also the way that internet security is designed now, we have transport layer security, HTTPS, you might see in your browser. That is really effective encryption. It means that basically nobody in the middle, your uh, internet provider, Telstra, Optus, whatever, they can't see any of the data. No one running the cables. Only you and the company you're sending your credit card details to. And that's, yeah, like that's good. <laughs> but then on the other hand, I think something you were getting at was the kind of incidental data that's being collected when we are using like these kind of online services uh software that is kind of running online and we're you know talking about meta facebook all of the interactions that we have uh, social interactions are getting recorded and used in some way google all of your google searches and this is uh this phenomenon of all this data being collected is called surveillance capitalism that's the term given by shoshana zuboff and this is yeah, again, pretty insidious. And when it comes to this kind of stuff, it's because there is this kind of like relationship of consent maybe, or, you know, not free consent because, you know, you click accept on the terms and conditions, but maybe you don't want to do that. Maybe you just want to talk to your friends or you want to work on a Google doc or something. But I guess the company is very much allowed to and incentivized to collect a lot of information about you and generally it's being used to build like up build up like an advertising profile of you to target you with ads you might object to that it's a bit different to like exposing you to a risk of criminalization i guess and sometimes like if we're worried about that maybe uh police might be able to get access to this data that the companies are holding but maybe it's not such a risk. And then there's these other kind of, yeah, when we're looking at that, there's different kind of layer of, okay, how do we think about being secure? How do we really prevent surveillance? And that's where I would start talking about end-to-end encryption. Yeah, so it seems like it's a lot more complicated. There are lots of different parts. And, and I guess looking at surveillance from different angles and for different purposes. Yeah. I guess the running theme here is that surveillance is used to get us to buy more things yeah. at the end of the day in some form or another to make big companies even richer, mm-hmm. if that's possible. But yeah, I guess, is there anything that you would want to say about the importance of encrypted chat servers and things like that? I think... Uh, a lot of people in activist spaces know already what they are and, and tend to use them yep. as a preference, but perhaps you could talk a bit more about how it works. Yeah, mm. absolutely. So I think it has become a lot more common um, to kind of use apps like Signal as a default, and that's really good because 
if you consider in perspective, like these apps have only been around for a few years, really. And so there is a pretty rapid culture shift around, okay, let's really prioritize security. And we can think like the incredible work that the people creating these apps have done to make it an easy experience mostly to work, which in the past, it was quite a complicated technology. Like, I don't know if some people might remember like PGP, which was like a way of encrypting your email, maybe got first introduced in the nineties. And it's really kind of, uh, has a bit of a reputation of being really tricky, really tricky to get your head around and use. So that's really cool. And I, I'd say that like the more and more this kind of these kind of practices can become the default. I'd, I'd say like what that enables is like much better trust and like trust is so important when we're uh, coordinating things online to know that we can talk freely about things. With end-to-end encryption, uh, it's impossible to read the contents of what you're saying if it's not on your device or the device of the person that you sent it to. And that's made possible by mathematical wizardry. <laughs> I, mean, I love that. But I really like what you said. Sorry, going back to what you were saying about trust and I guess allowing individuals to place trust in what they're using in order for their message to be communicated without fear of, like you said, criminality or or any data breach or anything like that yeah. is really important. Yeah, I can't imagine any sort of organising without that initial foundation of of trust and free communication. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's really like, um, again, talking about infrastructure, like it's it's the infrastructure that makes it possible to plan all the kinds of actions that we want to take.
Across these stolen lands, now called Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line, highlighting a range of gender non-conforming and women voices broadcast on the Community Radio Network. We've been speaking to Mary, co-founder of Radical Directory, about the ways in which we interact with the internet and with social media. Let's return now to our discussion with Mary. So we've talked a lot about the internet and capitalism and these big companies that seem to rule over so many of the platforms that we use. I was wondering, Mary, if you could tell us about how we could possibly subvert the control and the monopolies that big tech have on social media and the internet. And perhaps you could imagine for us ways for the internet to be an accessible and effective tool for organising. Absolutely. One of the problems that um, I guess like has come up repeatedly over the last few decades when it comes to answering this question has been, yeah, okay, maybe we can build our own Twitter. It's actually like really easy to build our own Twitter or like some other platform, you know, any of the alternatives to any of the common tools that we use all the time. It's possible there are programmers out there that want to volunteer their time to make that possible. But something we run into, especially in like the case of uh, social media, social applications, is that we don't want to really end up with our data being kept on uh, limited to the confines of a platform that is run by a small community or a small group of people. That's not necessarily, like, a much better alternative to, like, having our data be on this enormous capitalist platform. And so the answer to this kind of problem is to create protocols, which systems for decentralizing the design of these alternative apps so that we can have communities that are, like we were talking about before, building their own internet infrastructure, but in a way where it's not creating a new isolated little bubble rather than, you know, the big open forum of social media. It's it's creating like a bubble that can talk to other bubbles, <laughs> I guess, if that makes sense. So like a, a really good analogy or it's quite a direct analogy is with email because email is a system that we take for granted a lot. The fact that you can sign up to Gmail or you can sign up, sign up to Outlook and you can sign up to, I don't know, what a Proton Mail people like to use. So these are all different companies or organizations that allow you to create email accounts with them and you can send emails between these services. And that's really important. Like the fact that that's possible is based on the fact that email is this like independently described uh, system for communication. And the conversation that a lot of people are having is like a lot of people are having around this is we need these kind of systems like email but for all of the other things that we want to do with data online something that i've been interested in recently is instant messaging and as part of radical directory i've set up a server something called a matrix server matrix is the equivalent of email but for instant messaging which is also encrypted so that means we can set up our own little matrix server but anyone that joins it can speak to a really massive global network of matrix users. So that's sustainable actually, because 
we can get people onto a platform. And even if like as a little group, we have to shut that down, people can still use that platform, use that protocol to communicate. People still use email, even if Gmail dies. <laughs> and the equivalent exists for social media as well. There's something called Mobilizon, which is a French software that is kind of like an alternative to Twitter. And as there's been so much drama with Twitter in the last year, a lot of people have been moving on to that. And I think that's a really great, a really great thing to be happening. The analogy that you used with email, suddenly it all makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> when you put it that way, it sounds really feasible. Yeah. Like yeah, so possible. Totally. It is. It's a really great strategy, I think, to actually create sustainable alternatives to these centrally controlled systems. Maybe you could tell us how you came to name your collective or your project Radical Directory. I think it was quite intuitive. It was a comrade of mine who thought of this name and we wanted to be quite straightforward really that that was our initial intention was to create uh, a directory, like a phone book, I guess, of grassroots organisations, uh, collectives, affinity groups, and really start to be thinking about our movement as an ecology. If we can really start to visualize or just conceptualize the multiplicity of political movements and organizing that's happening everywhere, then we get to get a bit of a better sense of our own power as a movement. That was Mary, co-founder of Radical Directory, with her vision on how we can reclaim online spaces for ourselves. If you would like to know more about this project, you can visit their website, www.radical.directory. That's all for Women on the Line today. We would love to hear any comments or thoughts you have about the program, so please send us an email at womenontheline at gmail.com. Or give us a call at 3CR on 03 9419 That's 03 9419 You can also find us on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Women on the Line is a national feminist current affairs program. It's produced and presented by a range of women and gender non-conforming broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with funding support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. The theme music for Women on the Line is by Ripley Kavara. All Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from www.3cr.org.au forward slash women on the line. My name is Fung Tran. Tune into Women on the Line next week on your local community radio station. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.